Thank you, and good morning to all of you. It's a real delight to be here, and I'd like to, at the outset, thank Aaron and the elders for the opportunity to minister God's word to you all. I was here last year, and I spoke on Jacob. I'm sure nobody remembers. I don't remember it myself, but, um, <laughs> but chatting with Aaron a few weeks ago about what I should be doing in the three weeks that I have here, um, I decided I'd do Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Joseph to complete the cycle of the patriarchs. And so that's what we'll be doing. We'll be doing Abraham today, and then in two weeks, Isaac, and three weeks, uh, Joseph. You should have received a handout as you came in. It has all the verses that I will be dealing with, so if you pull that out, let's have another word of prayer, and we'll get going. Our Father, we are grateful for Dallas Bible Church. For the long legacy of godly men and women that have led it, we give thanks. And we give thanks for the current crop of leaders as well, all the way from the pastors and at multiple levels. Men and women have been faithful to you and to your people. We ask that you would continue to strengthen them and watch over this church abundantly. This morning, as we come to you in worship with the study of your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit, who inscripted these words would speak to our hearts, change our lives to make them look like the life of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In my uh, dermatology practice, I have a lot of kids. I love kids. And frequently I, I play sort of a, a game with them, testing them to see if they know their body parts. The other day, this three-year-old came in with his mother to get a wart on his knee treated. So I pointed to his nose and asked, them, asked him, is that your knee? He didn't say anything. So I thought I'd lob him something a little easier and pointed to his hand and said, is this your knee? Still no answer. And I was about to move on to his eyes when he turned to his mother and announced seriously, mom. I think we'd better find another doctor. <laughs> that was the last time I tested kids on body parts. I don't know about you, but I hate tests. Been through a lifetime of them. That's, but I do love giving tests. That's my job as a professor. But you can t rest easy today. No test for you. Instead, we're going to peek in on a test given to somebody else. However, it is not as disinterested onlookers that we're going to do this peeking. Because the same test question that this man took, God administers to us also. And it goes this way. Are you committed to me? A test given by God to gauge our relationship with him. A test of the priority of God in our lives. Are you committed to me? How important am I to you? Am I enough for you? And eavesdropping on this man's test will teach us how to ace that exam in our own lives. So three principles for acing the test from the life of the patriarch Abraham in Genesis 22, 1 through 19. Three principles for acing the test. 
What does it mean to be committed to God? So here we go, Genesis 22, somewhere in the middle of your handout. Well, look at the other verses in a bit. Genesis 22, 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, here I am. And he, God, said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah. That's a rather unusual Hebrew phrase, go forth, or it could be translated, go yourself. It occurs only two times in the book of Genesis, both times uttered by God, both times uttered to Abraham. The last time Abraham had heard this phrase, go forth, was in Genesis 12, verse 1. Don't, you don't have to turn there. When God addressed Abraham for the first time. And at that time, God had commanded him, go forth from your country, your people, your father's house. Here, God is addressing Abraham for the last time in Genesis 22. And the second command to go forth is similar. It too has three elements. Go forth and take your son, your only son, whom you love. And offer him there as a burnt offering. And do what with my son? In Genesis 12, Abraham had been asked to sacrifice his country, his clan, his family, his past. Now in Genesis 22, he's being asked to sacrifice his son, his future. A burnt offering. Trial by fire. God's fire. How important am I to you? Sacrifice your son, your only son, the one you love. While we know that this was only a test, remember that Abraham is completely in the dark. Why are you doing this to me, God? And we wonder with him, what was this test all about? Was it really necessary? And why this test now? Look at how Genesis 22 begins. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. What things and why after these things? You see, throughout the saga of Abraham from Genesis 12 through 22, he's actually shown rather clumsily stumbling along in his faith. He's not exactly the paragon of faith that we take him to be. Let me do a quick recap. In Genesis 12, he leaves his homeland, obeying God's call, and goes to Canaan. But the next instant, Abraham escapes out of there into Egypt because there's a famine in the promised land. The first sign of trouble, he's out of there. Could he not trust God to provide and there in Egypt, he passes off his wife, Sarah, as his sister, afraid that Pharaoh would kill him for his beautiful wife. Not a whole lot of faith there. If Pharaoh had taken Sarah into his harem, how would Abraham have had the descendant that God had promised him? Also, did you wonder why Abraham, when he leaves his father's house, takes Lot along with him, his nephew? God specifically told him to leave behind his relatives, and he takes Lot with him. I bet you he's thinking, 
you know, I am a little too old for this child-rearing stuff God has in store for me. I'm 75. Me change diapers at 75? What's God thinking? I'll just let God work through Lot, my nephew. He's a good kid. He's as good as my son. But that plan was not to be. Lot ends up in Sodom and later his descendants become enemies of the children of Abraham. And so after Lot is off the scene, Abraham thinks in Genesis 16, well, all right, maybe that descendant God promised will come from my own body. But not through that old lady, Sarah. I don't think so. Hey, listen, why don't, hey, Lord, what if I just, um, just uh, collaborate with uh, Hagar, Sarah's maid? And we all know how that fiasco turned out. You see, all along, good old Abe, bless his heart, doesn't seem to be taking God very seriously. At one point in Genesis 15, he even presents his servant, his steward, Eliezer, as his heir. A plan that God immediately nixes. God goes, dude, that is the Hebrew translation. <laughs> I'm talking about your descendant. What part of that do you not understand? But Abraham still doesn't have a whole lot of faith in God. And to cap it off, once again, for the second time in Genesis 20, he palms Sarah off as a sister when a local ruler, Abimelech, tries to appropriate her. Because he's afraid those foreigners would kill him for his wife. How could he get killed before having the descendant God had promised him? Really, this guy is not showing a whole lot of faith. And that's like one of the patients I had the other day, Carol. I've taken care of Carol and her family for years, and so as I walked into the room, I asked her, hi, Carol, how are the kids doing? She said, they're great, Dr. K. They're great. Thank God. Knock on wood. Well, you see, God really cannot be trusted to take care of my interests, right? I have to help him along, knocking on wood and crossing my fingers and tossing salt over my shoulders and avoiding black cats and broken mirrors and umbrellas inside homes. God's all right, but I got to do my own thing if I want to get ahead. Abraham is just like that. And I dare say, so are we. And then Isaac is born in Genesis 21. And then look at what Abraham does. 2133, it's in your handout. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And we're going, yeah, right. Is this for real? Has God suddenly become the priority in his life? When things are going right? Yeah, sure, it's all about planting trees and calling on God and stuff. But when push comes to shove, we know how Abraham acts. God is dismissed and forgotten, and he and we do our own thing. And that's why right after Abraham's grandstanding in 21.33, we have almost immediately in 22.1, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. A necessary test. Had he learned his lesson? How important was God to him? You see, it's easy to plant tamarisk trees and call upon God. It's 
easy to go through the process and look good. It's easy to wear the label Christian and evangelical. It's easy to attach a WWJD to my wrist and a cross to my neck and a silver fish to my fender. Is that all for real? Or is it just a facade? How important is God to us? Really? There needs to be a fiery test. And in our lives, there will be. Tests of faith are part and parcel of every believer's spiritual pilgrimage. And here's the first step for acing that test. Number one, expect God's fire. Expect God's fire. Expect God's fire not to trouble or to trap us but to stretch and to strengthen us, to remind us of the pettiness of ephemeral, transient things and the priority of an eternal God. Of course, our tests may not necessarily follow the pattern of Abraham's test. Without giving us a choice, as God did Abraham, Abraham could have refused. God might just take away the things that are dear to us. A skewed EKG, a suspicious mammogram, an ominous call from the doctor's office, your health gone, your bank account empty, your retirement non-existent, stock market plunging, your finances gone, a layoff announced, your call to your boss's office, your name is on the list. Your livelihood, gone. And maybe some of you are in the midst of such a test. For the rest of us, we can be sure one is going to come our way. Expect God's fire. No matter what the format of the test might be, God's quiz question remains the same. How important am I to you? Am I enough for you? A necessary test for our own good. And the first step to acing the test is to expect God's fire. There's an irony in all of this. Isaac, the promised descendant, is born after a long time in Genesis 21. And now in the next chapter, Genesis 22, God wants the child back. Abraham must have been absolutely stunned. No escape route. No rain check on the sacrifice. No substituting bird or beast. God wanted Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love. An excruciating test by fire. So Abraham takes Isaac and his young men, his servants, and they set out, 22, 3, and 4. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he arose and went. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Third day, three days. He had three days to think, to rethink this whole business of trusting God and sacrificing his son. Is this God trustworthy? Why Isaac, my son, my only son, whom I love? 
We have no record of Abraham's thoughts or words in those three days. We have only silence. Deafening silence. And obedience in total, absolute, complete trust. Listen to his words in 22.5. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here at the bottom of the mountain. Stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. We will worship and we will return. It's in the plural. He is sure of returning with Isaac. How could he be so certain? The guy who had thus far all along been quite shoddy in his faith, what had happened to change him that he could trust and obey God without question like this? The answer in one word is experience. Experience had taught Abraham about the faithfulness of his God. God had protected Abraham even when that rascal had lied about Sarah to save his own skin. Not once, but twice. God had faithfully seen him through when Abraham messed up taking Hagar as his partner. All along, Abraham had seen firsthand the faithfulness of God. And then when Isaac is finally born in Genesis 21, God hammers home this point of his faithfulness in no uncertain terms. Look with me at 21, 1 and 2. 21, 1 and 2. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son at the appointed time, of which God had spoken. Three times it says, as God said, as he had promised, of which God had spoken. God's going, Abraham, listen up. I have done what I have promised. You can trust me. And look at 21.12. Hadn't God promised through Isaac your descendants shall be named. God had already promised descendants through him, through Isaac. And in Genesis 21, God had experienced, Abraham had experienced God's faithfulness. God's word had come true. God had given him a son. God had promised that Abraham would have descendants through the son. So now here in Genesis 22, at the time of his fiery trial, when he's asked to sacrifice a son, Abraham is sure of the faithfulness of God. He doesn't know how God's going to do it, but he knows God will. If God gave me Isaac from a dead womb, surely God can give me back Isaac from a charred altar. When the time of our test comes, will we trust God as our provider as Abraham did? If God has taken care of our greatest eternal problem through his son, Jesus Christ, how will he not also take care of our lesser temporal issues? God can and God will. And if you look back into your life, you will find that God has been providing freely for you beginning with your salvation in you see, what kept, kept Abraham strong now in Genesis 22 was God's faithfulness in the past between Genesis 12 and Genesis 21. God's faithfulness in the past enables us to face the fires of the test in the future. So here's the second way we can ace the test. Experience God's faithfulness experience God's faithfulness. By experience, I mean take careful note of God's faithfulness. Attend to God's 
faithfulness. Deeply consider God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. I keep a picture catalog of God's faithfulness to me in my life on my Evernote app on my phone. I call it my portfolio of gratitude, things that I'm grateful to God for. It's an album of how God has provided, how God has protected, how God has sustained, how God has answered prayer. And all kinds of things go into this portfolio of gratitude album. Photographs of events, photos of cards, photos of notes, photos of people, photos of things, pictures of anything and everything that reminds me of God's faithfulness to me in the past. I'd strongly encourage you to do something like that. Even a basket full of index cards will do. Because just the habit of regularly going through such an album or a box of index cards, the habit of regularly recounting for ourselves and for our children the trustworthiness of God in the past will prepare us and strengthen us for the fire that we're expecting. Experience God's faithfulness by remembering it often, celebrating it, regularly. So how can we ace the test? Expect God's fire. Experience God's faithfulness. And thirdly, 22.9. Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I wonder what Abraham saw in Isaac's eyes. I wonder what Isaac saw in Abraham's eyes. My son, my only son, the one I love. Many a father has lost his child through some act of God, illness, tragedy, catastrophe, accident. For Abraham, though, it would be a harder trial by fire that was reserved for him because his child would be taken by God but through Abraham's own hand wielding the knife. But Abraham had already experienced the faithfulness of a trustworthy God. So Abraham pulls out his blade, 22.10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. This is the second time the phrase fear God shows up in the Bible. Where is the first time? Remember Genesis 20 where Abraham pretends Sarah is his sister when the local ruler Abimelech decides to take Sarah. God had intervened at that time and scared the daylights out of Abimelech, forcing him to return Sarah. And at the end of that episode, Abraham was confronted by Abimelech about his deception. And Abraham's excuse to Abimelech is a classic case of self-incrimination. Chapter 20, verse 11, it's in your handout. Abraham said, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God. That's the first time fear of God shows up in the Bible. There's no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Wait a minute. No fear of God. Abimelech, the guy who tried to take Sarah, was terror-stricken by the potential of sinning against God. It was Abraham who did not fear God enough to trust him. 
Abraham was the one who did not have the fear of the God. Instead, Abraham feared man. But that was in Genesis 20. After Genesis 21 and the birth of Isaac, here in Genesis 22, things have changed. Verse 12, Genesis 22. Now I know that you fear God. The one who had had no fear of God just two chapters ago had become, after experiencing God's faithfulness, the one who feared God. Abraham had learned that God was one who could be trusted totally, completely, absolutely. And so he now exhibited the fear of God. And what does that fear of God look like? 22.12 I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I want you to catch that carefully. Your son, your only son. Rewind back to 22.2, how it all started. Count those elements. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. What was it now in verse 12? Your son, your only son. What's missing? Whom you love. A deliberate narrative omission. Proof that now Abraham loved someone else more than Isaac. Interestingly enough, 22.2 is also the first place in the Bible you have the word love. Take your son, your only son, and the bells go off with a new word in Scripture, whom you love more than me. God's quiz question, how important am I to you, had now been answered. Abraham's priorities had been straightened out. He was committed to God. Now he feared God with reverential trust, total surrender, absolute obedience. Abraham exhibited God's fear. So there's a third way to ace God's test. Exhibit God's fear. Exhibit, demonstrate, manifest the fear of God. Because God's priority demands that his children hold back nothing from him. Nothing. That's what it means to fear God. He demands my soul, my life, my all. The sacrifice of Isaac, as we know, never happened, but another sacrifice, the real sacrifice, did the sacrifice of Abraham, the sacrifice of his all for God. And quite cleverly, the account actually tells us that. Look at how the story ends in Genesis 22, 19. 22, 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. Did you catch that? Who are the characters here? Abraham? And his young men. Wait, someone's missing. Where's Isaac? 
after the test, it is almost as if Isaac has vanished into thin air. The narrator has taken an eraser and wiped out any mention of Isaac. In fact, father and son are never recorded in the Bible as speaking to each other after this point. Now, I am sure that they actually did speak and discussed cars and camels and baseball and politics and all of that stuff, but the Bible just completely omits any mention of such contact. In fact, they don't even, they're not even shown being together ever again. The next time they actually come into contact is when Abraham is dead and Isaac comes to bury him. This omission is deliberate. The divine author is clearly making a point. A line had been drawn. A decision had been made. Nothing would come between Abraham and God ever again. No, not even Isaac. For Abraham, my son, my only son, whom I love, had now become my God, my only God, whom I love. And that God deserves the sacrifice of Everything we hold dear. Everything. He did it first for us, didn't he? Giving us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How important was God to Abraham? For Abraham so loved God that he Nothing ought to come between us and God. Anything or anyone that does is an idol. Family. Do we love our families more than we love God? Have they become idols? Is family taking up so much time and mental energy that we haven't been giving adequate attention to our own walk with God? Or attending to the eternal family of God, the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters? Or is it money? Is that an idea? What has been the pattern of our giving, of our resources? Has it been going up? Or how about our reputations, our jobs, our education, our power? Do you hear God calling for a sacrifice of those idols? A reorganization of those priorities. Saints throughout the ages of the church have practiced giving up things of value, at least for brief periods of time, in order to habituate themselves into sacrificing for God in the fear of God. Perhaps this is something we could emulate. I'd like us to seriously consider practicing sacrifice at least temporarily, to exhibit God's fear, to fine-tune our hearts to the fear of God. Here are four suggestions for sacrifice that, church, that the church has used over its two millennia. They're called the, the sacrifices, the, the disciplines of abstinence, things we give up. Solitude, sacrificing company, at least for a while. Fasting, sacrificing food, at least for a while. 
simplicity, sacrificing luxurious living, or even celibacy, sacrificing sex. Let me challenge us to try one or more periodically, making it a habit, not necessarily permanently, but for brief periods of time. Skipping a meal once or twice a week, or a temporary fast from media or sex, or giving up something that you think has gotten its talons into you. Or for some, it may be lifelong practice of frugality and simplicity. And perhaps if that is your gift, as I think it's mine, it's a lifetime of practicing celibacy for the cause of Christ. Practice sacrifice. Engage in one or more of these disciplines of abstinence. These are great ways to exhibit the fear of God, to practice our fear of God, to habituate ourselves into the fear of God. Reverential trust, total surrender, and obedience that demands your all. If you were sitting inside the cockpit of a departing airplane, just before it took off from the runway, you would hear the co-pilot or the captain call out, V1, the point of no return. Pilot maintains a hold on the throttle as the aircraft accelerates to V1 speed, at which point he calls out V1 and immediately lets go of the throttle because at that point it is too late to abort the takeoff should something go wrong. There is no turning back. There is no touching the throttle anymore at V1. Are we there? Have we reached a V1 commitment in our walk with God? The point of no return in our fear of God. Full throttle, complete obedience, total surrender with nothing, absolutely nothing held back from Him. God wants that of us. And He'll test us and test us and test us again till we attain V1. And how can we ease those tests? Expect God's fire. Experience God's faithfulness. Exhibit God's fear. Let's pray.